Well, Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, first off, I want to thank everyone who volunteered yesterday for the, for the lawn day, both young and, and old. Uh, the lawn does look so much better. Thank you so much for your work. And, and do keep your eyes open because we, we do hope to do another uh, service day here soon as well. And thank you also for, for everyone who's gathered here today, um, especially today as we start a new series on the Gospel of, of Matthew. And today we're, we're looking at a genealogy which, which can seem like a strange place to start. That can seem like a strange place uh, to focus on for, for a sermon. But even here, we find God's clear and persistent proclamation of the gospel. And with that confidence, with that hope, with that truth, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you here as we see the recounting of this genealogy from Abraham to David to Jesus. Even here, and especially here, we find the promise of your gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the the philosopher D.C. Schindler He speaks of the way that the greatest stories actually work to surprise us. He he draws here from both Aristotle and and Goethe, and he explains how the best endings, the best endings of stories, they fulfill everything that has gone before, but they do so in a way that we never would have expected. He writes, In order for there to be a genuine surprise, it is necessary for the prior events to generate a state of anticipation. At the same time, however, the moment of reversal cannot, or, sorry, cannot simply be deducible from prior events. It has to interrupt the claim, thwart, or even shatter the expectations. But, and this is the key, the moment cannot shatter the dramatic form of the whole. Instead, this reversal must recast the meaning of the parts and the anticipation they produced in a manner that brings them all to a definite fulfillment. And he closes, here is the great paradox of great drama. Anticipation is fulfilled by what it cannot have expected. Anticipation is fulfilled by what it cannot have expected. And we all know this. We, we sense this. Many of our most popular stories follow this exact structure. They confront us with an ending that we never would have expected, but then once we see it, we can't imagine how any other turn of events would have brought the story to fulfillment. Only this, we think, could bring all of the pieces that came before, bring all of these pieces together into a meaningful whole. And this is the ending we were anticipating, even hoping for, but one that we never would have expected. And at the risk of of spoiler alerts, uh, consider two of our most popular stories um, in our modern culture. And and I apologize if you're not familiar with these stories or if you're in the thick of them now, but, but they've been out for quite a while, so I think it's safe to just go ahead and talk about the endings. The first would be J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. If you're familiar with this series of stories, it it has to be that Harry is the last horcrux that has to be destroyed. Uh, 
that alone can make sense of Harry's lifelong tie to Voldemort and give, it gives shape to the sacrificial length that Harry is willing to go to to save the wizarding world. It's a surprise, but once we see that, everything makes sense. Or we might think about Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It has to be that Gollum steals the ring and, and he unwittingly falls into the fires of Mount Doom. In this way, the pool of evil destroys itself in the end. The many acts of mercy that were shown to Gollum along the way, well, they actually serve to destroy the ring. Mercy, we find, triumphs over this great and horrible evil. Yes, it's a surprise, but having seen it, it all makes sense now. These are not the endings that we expected, but they're endings that bring together everything that came before. They're anticipated in everything that came before. And that's exactly what we find in this passage, in this genealogy, and that's exactly what we'll find throughout the rest of Matthew. In Matthew 13, we find a very important exchange between Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus tells the following to his disciples. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And in New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner, he sees this as the key verse in Matthew. It points us to the structure and the purpose of the book. As Schreiner writes, Matthew is the discipled scribe who narrates Jesus' life through the alternation of the new and the old. He points out that the word here for trained, it actually comes from the Greek word for disciple, and so what is here translated as trained scribe could actually be translated as discipled scribe. And commentators point out that Matthew himself is this discipled scribe. And it's because he himself has been discipled by the great teacher. He has been discipled to bring out treasures both new and old. Specifically, he, by Jesus, has been discipled to understand old treasures, this history of Israel in relation to new treasures, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the unexpected fulfillment that all of the Old Testament has been anticipating. The discipled scribe, as Matthew does, must keep both, both of these things together. The new can only be fully understood in light of the old, and the old can only be fully understood in light of the new. As the uh, ancient African Bishop Augustine writes, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And so Matthew is not simply presenting the life of Jesus. As a disciple scribe, he's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has gone before. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the ending that we never expected, but all of the Old Testament anticipated. And Matthew seeks, therefore, to make us discipled scribes. He wants us to understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament, and he wants us to understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus. He wants us to be persons who rightly appreciate and rightly handle treasures, both new and old. And so Matthew, at each and every point in his gospel, as we'll see through this series, he's going to teach us how Jesus just is the fulfillment of everything that came before. 
He's the fulfillment of the story of Israel and, in fact, the fulfillment of the story of humanity itself. And we see Matthew doing this immediately as he kicks us off with the genealogy. And I want to look at it under three points. The story chronicled, the story confessed, and the story completed. So let's look first at the story chronicled. It's important to note that Matthew begins his gospel with the following introduction. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the Greek word here translated genealogy is genesis. And even then, in the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, even then, genesis was the title of the first book of that translation. The, the Greek translation is known as the Septuagint. Genesis, which just is Genesis. And so right from the very beginning, Matthew is connecting this genealogy with the very beginning of God's story, with Genesis, with creation. And even more, Matthew uses a very particular introductory phrase. He says, this is the book of the genealogy. And in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis 2.4 and Genesis 5.1 use this very same phrase. In Genesis 2.4, we find, this is the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth when they were generated. In Genesis 5.1, we find this is the book of the genealogy of humanity and the day God made Adam. So Matthew's use of this phrase, this is the book of the genealogy, well, he's connecting his gospel to the very beginning of everything, to the creation of heaven and earth, and then to the creation of humanity, which begins with the creation of Adam. Matthew is telling us that on par with the creation of the universe and the creation of humanity is the arrival of Jesus Christ. This is the one who will usher in a new creation. This is the new Adam who will usher in a new humanity. But the story of Scripture, it's not just the story of creation and humanity in general. Because from out of the midst of all peoples, God calls Abraham specifically and he tells him the following in Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God tells Abraham that he will be blessed in order to be a blessing. God tells him that he will make him a great nation, and in Abraham specifically, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Through Abraham will come an offspring who will bless all of these nations, who will bless all of these families. And Matthew 1.1 is telling us that Jesus is that son of Abraham. He's the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. What began with Abraham will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But verse 1.1 also tells us something else. It says, Jesus is the son of David. And this refers to another specific promise of another specific son. God tells David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
we're told here that this one son of David will come and will establish the throne of David forever. And Matthew tells us that Jesus just is that son. Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. He is the promised son of David. He is the great promise who will bless the nations. And he is the promised Davidic king whose reign will be forever. And from there, Matthew takes us on a whirlwind tour of the history of of Israel. We're met with generation after generation of descendants. He starts with Abraham, he goes to David, and he finishes with Jesus. And surely, if, if, if these promises are true, this blessing of being a great nation, this blessing of having a king who will reign forever, surely each generation will be more faithful, more splendid, more accomplished than the last. But that's actually not the story that we find here in this genealogy. And Matthew edits his genealogy. There's several generations that are skipped in the genealogies. But what Matthew does is he gives us three sets of 14. And so what he does is gives us the story of Israel in three equal parts. And New Testament scholar Richard Hayes refers to these as the three great chapters of Israel's history. And that first chapter is the one that goes from Abraham to David. And this is a story of the establishment of Israel. It's a story that heads in an upward direction. The family of Abraham grows. The kingdom is established. Great King David sits upon the throne. Everything seems to be going so well. But then suddenly we find a shift. And this is foreshadowed in the horrible actions of David that begin this second set of generations. The second chapter of Israel's history here begins with, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This chapter begins with David's murder and his forced relations and marriage with Bathsheba. And with these horrible actions, the kingdom is no longer on a path of ascent. It's peaked. And what we'll find is a descent that continues until the end of this chapter. How does this chapter close? With verse 11, with the deportation to Babylon. We start with David and then we finish in exile. None of the kings, not David or any of his sons, was this promised king who would reign forever. And not only has the kingdom been ripped into two separate nations under the rule of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, but now the kingdom of Judah, the enduring kingdom of David, has been overthrown and exiled to Babylon. And so we ask, where is God's promise? Where is this promised son of Abraham, this promised son of David? Where is the one called the Christ, the Messiah, the one who will reign on the throne of David forever? And this question brings us to the third chapter of the genealogy, one that begins in exile. It begins in Israel's lowest point. The people are scattered among the nations, And even when some end up returning to Jerusalem, the exile has not truly ended. We sit here with no king of David, no son of David upon the throne, the Messiah, the Christ, this Davidic king who will establish God's kingdom forever. He's nowhere to be seen until we come to the climax, the culmination of this genealogy. The third chapter begins in exile, but it ends with Jesus Christ. 
And Matthew, when he speaks of Christ, he uses the definite article to describe his title. And so properly speaking, verse 16 tells us it is Jesus who is called the Christ. The Christ. He is the one who has been long expected. Finally, this is the true son of Abraham, the true son of David. Finally, this is the king who will bring an end to our exile. But we can't miss a very important point here. To tell this story right, Matthew is not just chronicling a history. He's not just chronicling a thing that happened. He's also undergoing an act of confession. Because to tell the history of Israel is to tell the story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Matthew must acknowledge that we as a people, that I as a person, justly deserve this exile. He must confess that we, all of us, and not just our kings, merit exile. And while this story chronicles the faithfulness of God, it also chronicles the unfaithfulness of God's people to God. And so to tell this story rightly is not just to chronicle, but it's also to confess. And that brings us to our second point, the story confessed. The way that Matthew is telling this story, the quintessential sin of Israel is David's murder of Uriah and his forcing himself upon Bathsheba. This becomes a kind of paradigm of Israel's unfaithfulness that leads to their exile. And how does God address this sin when he confronts David through the prophet Nathan? Well, he does so with a story, and the story with the most unexpected of endings. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan tells David a story, and he tells him a story about two men, one rich and the other poor. This rich man had many, many flocks and herds, while the poor man had only one little lamb whom he cared for as his own child. And when the rich man received a traveler as a guest, rather than taking one of the sheep from his many, many flocks, he took from the poor man his one and only lamb in order to prepare a meal. And hearing this story, David responds in anger. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And here comes the great unexpected ending. Nathan looks at David and declares, You are the man. To again quote philosopher D.C. Schindler, here is the great paradox of great drama. Anticipation is fulfilled by what it cannot have expected. This ending, this reversal, it surprises David. But having heard Nathan, David knows that this is the only ending he could have anticipated. What else could he expect from his great and holy God? Yet David was only able to truly hear and receive this reversal through an act of confession. Confession reorients David's story. While he was listening, David believed himself to be this great upholder of justice, seeking the death of the rich man. But David finds himself recast. You are the man. David's not the hero. David's the villain. And so David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. This great reversal in the story is who David truly is before the Lord 
his God. And this account is not unlike another classic narrative in the Christian tradition, one told by Augustine in his Confessions. Augustine tells the story about how one night when he was 16, he and his friends, they, they stole neighbors from a friend's or from a neighbor's pear tree. But as Augustine thinks about this act, he sets himself to a very difficult task. He seeks to understand the act of sin. He tries to understand the, the logic, the, the rationality, the coherence of sin. But Augustine points out that there's a great irony here because sin is it's wholly illogical, it's wholly irrational, it's wholly incoherent. And so in reflecting on this action, Augustine tries to comprehend what's incomprehensible. Augustine explains that he himself had more than enough pears in his own family's farm. And they were actually of higher quality than these pears. Augustine and his friends, they did not delight in the eating of the pears. And eventually, Augustine writes, we took enormous quantities not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. And so Augustine wonders, why, why would he do such a thing? Why would he steal pears that he doesn't need, that actually taste worse than the great abundance of you know, pears he already has? Well, one reason Augustine focuses on this particular sin is its similarity to the very first sin, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden eating the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve find themselves in a place of total abundance. They can eat any fruit they desire except that one fruit from that one tree. Even more, they, they enjoy a perfect relationship and a perfect communion with God, the one who alone can, can, can uh, fulfill their deepest longings and deepest desires. Adam and Eve have no need, no lack. They have everything they could want. God has satisfied them in full. And so how is it that sin is brought about? Why would they trade all of this abundance for just one forbidden fruit? And there's a sense in which this should not make sense to us. To make full sense of this action, well, it's actually to make too much sense of sin. It's to make the irrational rational, to make the illogical logical, to make the incoherent coherent. Adam and Eve have traded the greatest of all goods, God himself, and countless lesser goods, these gifts of creation, and they've traded it all for one particular lesser good, this forbidden fruit. And this is the difficulty that Augustine finds himself in. Why, when we already have this great abundance of greater goods, why would he and why would Adam and Eve turn their back on this great abundance for one little fruit? Why did Augustine do that? And using Nathan's illustration, why did David do that? Why did he steal one little lamb of another when he has his own abundance of flocks? Well, this is the incoherence, the irrationality, the incomprehensibility of sin. Sin is the willing sacrifice of great abundance for the ungrateful theft, the ungrateful stealing of one forbidden thing. As David shows, 
this can even steal and ruin the lives of others. And it makes no sense at all. In the strictest sense, sin is nonsense. But we, all of us, we do this. We forsake the abundance that God has for us in order to steal and to cling to one thing that he, for our good and our flourishing, has forbidden. We trade our time of communion and fellowship with God and with the friends and family that God has placed into our lives for the sake of letting our work time extend beyond its proper limits so we can shoot off a few more emails that will be quickly forgotten. We trade the deep relational joy of hospitality, of gracious hosting, of generous giving for the sake of holding on to a few more dollars that we'll probably use to buy things we don't really need anyways. We trade the deep blessing of slow and regular family fellowship for the frenetic attempt to add one more academic or athletic line to our children's resume. We trade the deep love that God has lavished upon us for some romantic ideal that seeks love in a manner that contradicts God's imperatives for human flourishing. Again and again, we trade the good and infinite God and the many other good gifts of his creation for some particular thing that he has forbidden. As C.S. Lewis rightly says, it would seem that our desires, sorry, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. In each case of sin, we forsake the abundance that God has for us in order to cling to something that he, for our good and flourishing, has forbidden. We're, we're like a child, a child who hides behind the couch and picks their nose and eats the contents, refusing to come to this wonderful, delicious dinner that his parents have prepared. Sorry for the image, but, but I think that is an accurate image of sin. Because when we sin, we turn our backs on the wonderful gift of abundance that God has offered, most notably himself. And so Augustine, he can't make any sense of sin. But he also makes another important point. To rightly speak of sin, and so to rightly tell our own stories and the sins therein, well, that itself is a gift. Reflecting on his ability to tell the story of his theft of the pears, he says the following, How can I repay the Lord for my ability to recall these things without fear? Let me love you, Lord, and give thanks to you and confess your name because you have forgiven my grave sins and wicked deeds. Why is it that Augustine can recall and confess his grave sins and his wicked deeds? And why can he do this without fear? Well, it's because God has forgiven him. In the story of Adam and Eve, Augustine realizes you are the man. In the story of the rich man and the poor man, David realizes you are the man. And this realization just is an act of confession. And Matthew's genealogy is itself a confession, a kind of corporate confession of the people of Israel, a corporate confession of the people of God. And why can Matthew recount this story as he does? Why can he show that David's sin is the quintessential sin of Israel that leads to their exile? Why can he not only chronicle but confess 
what's happened? Well, he can do so because like Augustine, he knows that he's been forgiven. David, Augustine, and Matthew have all come to understand that they are the guilty ones. Yet they readily confess their sins and they open themselves up to the right and proper consequences that follow. Theft and murder and coercion and assault should be punished by legal authorities. Please don't hear me saying otherwise. But what we are speaking of here is divine forgiveness. And each of them and each of us deserve the ultimate exile of death. For all the ways that we have been Adam and Eve and David and Augustine, and this just is the verdict of the perfect justice of God. But instead, God offers us forgiveness. And because God offers forgiveness of our grave sins and our wicked deeds, we can confess them without fear to him and to one another. And so we have to ask, church, are we doing that? Augustine is saying, and I think he's right here, that the only way to truly tell our story, to share who we are, is if we've realized we've been forgiven by God. To confess in a Christian sense assumes forgiveness. It assumes that we are free from condemnation because of the forgiveness of God. Otherwise, we will hide ourselves, we will conceal ourselves, especially in our present cultural moment where forgiveness seems almost non-existent across the social and political spectrum. And so if you're not confessing and if you're not telling others your true story, ask yourself, do you really believe in God's forgiveness? But then let's ask another question. If you are not confessing, not telling your true story, are we as a church actually functioning as a community of forgiveness? Do we actually relate to one another as committers of grave sins and wicked deeds who have been forgiven by God and so who can confess and repent without fear? If not, we're not living out God's true forgiveness. And this is why Matthew can chronicle the history of Israel as an act of confession because God forgives and he does so with the most surprising and unexpected of endings. It's an ending he never would have guessed, but one anticipated in all of the Old Testament. Yes, we deserve to die, but someone else dies instead. And that brings us to our third and final point. In the English, when you read this list, it appears in the passive. Abraham was the father of Isaac, but in the Greek, it's actually in the active. Abraham fathered Isaac. Abraham begat Isaac. And we see 42 instances of fathers begetting sons. Or that's almost what we see. As theologian Thomas Wynandy points out, there's one exception. We find that Jacob begets Joseph, but Joseph himself does not beget Instead, we find in Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. What does this mean? Well, it tells us that, strictly speaking, Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Yes, Joseph takes him as his son and will graft him into his family line. Yes, according to his humanity, he is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of Joseph, but strictly speaking, Abraham and David and Joseph are not his true father. His true father is another. 
The Christian doctrine of the incarnation is God becoming human. Specifically, God the Son takes upon himself a human nature, a human body, and a human soul, and as Christians, we also believe in the Trinity, that God exists as one nature in three persons. The one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the Father because he eternally begets the Son, giving to and sharing with the Son the one divine nature, and the Son is the Son because he is eternally begotten by the Father, receiving the one divine nature from the Father. And so in the incarnation, we find Jesus is both the true son of David and Abraham, but also the true son of God, God the Father. Jesus Christ is the son of God the Father becoming human. And this is the greatest of surprise endings because remember, Matthew's genealogy is the chronicle and confession of God's faithfulness to a people who are unfaithful. God has given them such abundance, the wonders of creation, the garden of paradise, a land of milk and honey, a kingdom with rest on every side. Most of all, God has given his people himself, yet they've rejected this abundance, and so we find an unfaithful people who have earned the punishment of exile. But it's here where Matthew shows us how Jesus completes this story, and it's unexpected, but it's anticipated by all of the Old Testament. God the Son becomes human, and he does what Abraham, what David, what all of the people of Israel, what all of us cannot do. God becomes human, and he lives the perfectly faithful life. He becomes the perfectly faithful son of Abraham, of David, of Joseph. God becomes human, and he responds with complete human faithfulness, to God's own divine faithfulness. But Christ does even more. He also takes the punishment that we deserve for not doing so, for forsaking the abundance that God offers to us by clinging to and trying to steal some forbidden thing. And in paying this penalty for us, Christ suffers a much deeper exile than one of geographical scattering. He experiences the exile brought about by sin. And this is not just a separation from a particular place, but from our very God. This is the exile of the cross. As one theologian writes, on the cross, Christ experiences desertion, a spiritual and internal suffering from a most oppressive sense of God's wrath resting upon him because of our sins. What then is Matthew's surprise ending? It is Adam and David and Augustine and each of us saying to ourselves, you are the man or you are the woman. And yet seeing God himself take the punishment of death upon himself in Jesus Christ. David's response is, as the Lord lives, this man shall die. But God's surprise ending is, as the Lord lives the Lord shall die. Yes, we are the ones who deserve the exile of death, but God has become human in Jesus Christ, and he has died in our place according to his humanity. Remember that sin is the rejection of God's great gift of abundance, and here we see the possibility of the greatest sin of all. 
God not only gives us his faithfulness, but he also gives us our own faithfulness. God himself has been faithful to himself in Jesus Christ. God himself offers to us a perfect human faithfulness. As with all of God's work, salvation is a gift. Simply receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of humanity given to us in one person. To reject the abundance offered to us in Christ is to turn our backs on the greatest gift of all. This alone will end our true exile, our exile from God, for God in Christ has reconciled us to him. And this too will also end our exile from one another. Having been forgiven by God, we confess, as does Matthew, our true story to one another. As Schindler says, here is the great paradox of great drama. Anticipation is fulfilled by what it cannot have expected. This is the great drama of Matthew's genealogy. The God who exiles an unfaithful people has ended our exile by exiling himself in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you offer such great gifts of abundance, that you offer us yourself, and you offer us salvation in Jesus Christ. Please, God, in our hearts, do not let us reject and embrace and glory in such a gift of salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.